Welcome to the Dirty Lie Podcast, a podcast about facts, figures, and weird things from the past. I'm your host, Dez, and I'm here with my co-host, TMT. Welcome to the podcast. Each week, I give my co-host, Tim Tayo, three quote-unquote facts, and he has to figure out what is true and what is a dirty lie. What is the dirty lie? What has actually happened in history? Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm very excited. I'm medium level excited, but quite excited. It's going to be a good one, I think. It's going to be great, actually. You know, I think, I know, I chose a topic that I was like, Tim Tai's going to love this. Like, I was doing the research, like, oh my God. Also, I have no, like, actual hints or ideas or any sort of inkling what we're going to talk about in this episode. So I'm very excited to get into it. Yeah, like, you know, sometimes I tell you, oh, we're going to talk about Nigeria, or we're going to talk about politicians, or we're going to talk about women in the 1920s. Today, I told you nothing. Nothing at all. So, you know, it's topical. Things are happening in the world right now that made me think about this topic. Because when we had the prison break... You know, the Abuja prison break where a lot of Boko Haram members walked back into society. A few days later, you had the release of some victims of the Kaduna train ambush, right? And I was like, that looks like an exchange was made. It looks like the Nigerian government unofficially made an exchange with Boko Haram. Yeah, that's exactly what's happened. And that is a tale as old as time. Prisoner exchanges, spice changes. I was looking at Brittany Greer and, you know, they're trying to... St- and I was like, Russia is definitely trying to tramp her down yeah. and use her. As a tool. Yeah, as a cut. Because even in Ukraine and Russia are having exchanges right now. So I was like, let's look at some spies and some spy exchanges that have happened in history. Have you seen the movie Bridge of Spies? I have not but I am going to talk about the British spies today. Okay, that's very interesting. Mark Williams is one of the greatest actors of his generation. Who? He's the main character in Bridge of Spies, but you should watch uh, it. It's really good. I, I came across it in my research because that bridge was used a couple of times um, by America and the Soviets as yeah. an exchange point. Because yeah. there was one place in the world where they shared a border. This is when there was an American... Um, occupied area of West Germany was right opposite from a Soviet occupied area of East Germany and there was a bridge that linked them and it was called you know the name of the bridge I just call it Bridge of Spies in my head <laughs> it's called Klineki um, it's called the Klineki Bridge by the Germans the American called it something else it's more easy to pronounce but that's not I'm not going to go with the American name of the German bridge Fair enough. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so today we're talking about spy exchanges and let's let's just go straight into it. Welcome to the Dirty Lie Podcast. So number one, fact number one. In 2011, the Israelis and Hamas came to an agreement for a prisoner exchange. It's called the Gilad Shalit Prisoner Exchange, where they exchanged one man one Israeli man, mm-hmm. Gilad Shalit, he was a regular old soldier, and they exchanged him for 1,027 prisoners who were mostly Palestinians, Arab Israelis, a Ukrainian, a Jordanian, and a Syrian. 
why was he so important? You know, we can get into that later. Okay, so is that your, that's the first one? Yeah, that's the first fact. Like, you know, he had like, yeah, so that's fact number one. One man for 1,027. Fact number two. Carl and Hannah Ketcher were regarded as super spies. Carl was seen as a super spy. Hannah was his wife. She was his partner in crime who infiltrated the CIA by participating in swinger clubs in D.C. Um, so Carl was able to, in the, this is in the 1970s, go very, very high up in the CIA. He was able to gain a lot of access even to a U.S. senator by participating in swinger clubs with his wife, Hannah. They were from Czechoslovakia, so they were Soviet. Uh, I, I imagine they were both attractive. Yeah, I mean, like... In the white, like... Yeah, you know, like... 50s, I, 60s way. Yeah, I was in that way. Um, she was, I mean, she, she was attractive. She's like, she's a beautiful blonde. He's a guy, you know, mm. with the glasses. You know, those, like, 70s, like, kind of Jeffrey Darmack type glasses. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's fact number two. And fact number three, in April of 1978, you had a three-way exchange go on um, between America, East Germany, and Mozambique. When you had one, Robert Thompson, a 43-year-old, one-time U.S. Air Force clerk who was a Russian spy. He lived in Long Island and he was just like this, you know, Air Force guy, spy for the Soviets and he was thrown in jail. So that's the American guy going to East Germany. The second person involved in this is Miron Marcus. He's a 24-year-old Israeli who was caught in Mozambique, apparently working for Rhodesia. Rhodesia at this time is, today is Zimbabwe, back then Rhodesia, white you know, and the Mozambican said he's a spy. We've caught him, and so he was in Mozambique. So you have an Israeli working for Rhodesia in Mozambique, and you have Alan Van Norman, a 22-year-old biology student from Minnesota. He was trying to sneak out information from East Germany back to West Germany, like he had done surveying of the land and stuff like that. Like, so it's a spy. But he, his cover was that he was a 22-year-old college student from Minnesota and he was caught. And he had a three-person exchange going on in 1978. And yeah, that's the fact. I think the lie is that they exchanged um, a thousand people for one guy. Okay, press the wrong button. You know what? Fair enough. I couldn't. I couldn't guess any of them, so I just picked the one that sounded the most ridiculous. It's ridiculous yeah. yeah. So the lie is the last one. Alan Van Norman, the student in that three tripartite uh, exchange, the student he wasn't a, a spy at all. He tried to get a doctor, his wife, and his kid out of East Germany in his boot, in the boot of his car. Oh, okay. Um, that and makes sense. He wasn't. A, he wasn't actually an American spy. I made it kind of difficult. Was he American at all? Yeah, he was American. He was from Minnesota. He kind of just got recruited by, I think, a pastor in London or something. Um, we ha- I have a recording of him. But should we get the... No, we can't get the lie out of the way. The lie is juicy. There's so much going on. Actually, let's do the lie. 
Okay, let's do let's the live. Let's do the live because it's a bit everywhere. What was his family doing there in the first place? He wasn't with his family. So Alan Alan wasn't there with his family. He told his family what he was going to do. And he said he thinks his dad was living vicariously through him when he told him. Right. And his mom was, was like, his mom was a mother. So she was like, that's dangerous. Don't do that. You're my son. You're precious. Please don't do that. He said he, you know, never met the family since that moment. He put them in his boots. He got caught on the bridge trying to cross into yeah west germany yeah when he got caught he said he didn't feel scared until like they brought out the guns and they found the family he was like okay this is mm-hmm. this is serious mm. but he gets exchanged in this three-person exchange and i was wondering why the israeli in mozambique was part of this exchange because he's very random and i found out why with WikiLeaks. what happened what did he do WikiLeaks. okay so should we talk about the Israeli and then finally we talk about Thompson, who's the actual spy in this? Who's the proven spy? Yeah. So Miran Marcus is 24. He's an Israeli man who holds a passport from Rhodesia and he was working there in his father-in-law's radio manufacturing business. Sounds like spy equipment to me. Yeah. His wife was South African, white South African. So I imagine this is a racismo family. And in late April, he was allowed to walk to freedom into Swaziland from Mozambique. So freedom! <laughs> in late April of 78, he was allowed to walk to Swaziland from Mozambique, where he had been held on since September of 1976, when bad weather had forced his plane to land during a flight to South Africa. Mozambique troops surrounded the craft and opened fire, wounding Marcus and killing his brother-in-law. Although he insisted that his his flight was strictly for business purposes, diplomats in West Germany have speculated that Marcus may have been surveying Cuban and Soviet activity in Mozambique or the CIA and Israeli intelligence. Now, this is according to Time magazine, right? So they're like, he might have just been surveilling for America and Israeli intelligence, or maybe he was surveilling for Rhodesia or South Africa because you know anyways so he goes down in 76 his plane goes down 76 surrounded by Mozambican forces and yeah. he's shot up they take him to the hospital and then he's imprisoned as he describes it in what looked like a laundry room in a house in Maputo now he is not part of this prisoner exchange until April of 1978 however something very interesting happens in 1977 what he finds his lord and savior Jesus Christ <laughs> no okay he escapes from the Mozambicans who are holding him oh dear and makes it to the American embassy mm. and America sends him back I don't understand now i found this you guys i love wikileaks i don't know if it's illegal to say that it's not illegal to say that i love wikileaks i found this on wikileaks on monday the 17th of january 1977 there is a confidential wire sent from the u.s embassy in maputo it starts by saying that marcus an israeli citizen and rhodesian immigrant walked into the embassy at approximately 1500 hours local time and asked to speak with embassy officials. He was attired in local prison attire. He identified himself as a pilot of Rhodesian-based aircrafts which had strayed across the border and crashed into Mozambique mm. in the early hours of September 4th, 1975. 
Well, this is what the this is what the wire says. Marcus claimed he was flying from Bulawayo, Rhodesia, to Petersburg, South Africa, by way of Messina. Now he claimed that bad weather had caused him to stray off his flight path, and he got grounded. He lost consciousness when he was shot. He was shot in the left hip. His brother-in-law, who had a student pilot's license, landed the plane, and he was killed when the armed forces, the Freelimo armed forces, shot upon him. Now. How did he get to the embassy? He says, <laughs> wait, what do you want to see? Uh, I'm curious, how did he get to it? So he said that after his wounds were first treated in a hospital in Maputo, he was kept prisoner in a laundry room behind a house in a residential section of mm. Maputo. He claimed the room had no windows. Put him in a BQ. And they put him in a BQ. <laughs> like we caught this white guy, don't know who he is or what to do with him. I beg, lock him in the boys' quarter. <laughs> That's a a very African thing. (laughs) And he said that he wasn't tortured or treated badly, but that he wasn't treated nicely, that they gave him rice, water and bread, which... I don't know. That seems like a soft life. That's it. He said it was he, he was protesting his poor food and lack of medical attention because his wound wasn't healing quickly, mm. and that he was visited by commander of Freelimo who said you will talk when I want you to talk. Mm. Not a moment before. So just stay in the BQ. So they didn't even want his confession. They were like, <laughs> just we'll like, get just, to you later. We'll get to you later. <laughs> <laughs> just stay there. So he said after that he made up his mind to escape that he was watching the guards and he loosened the locks to the door latches and that when they went to sleep on earlier that morning he escaped the house he said when he escaped the house he was picked up by police but <laughs> the police went for lunch and left him unguarded in an office <laughs> at which point Africa is really a country I mean <laughs> Because that is something I definitely see our boys doing easy. 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 Like, where is this one going to go? Like, I feel like I watch, I feel like, you know, people say Africa is a country, but I feel like all of us below the equator, we share some qualities because I'm definitely. You know, it's funny because, like, it's the same rationale that, like, the same rationale for them that this guy is a white guy in lagos mm. so how is he going to escape like where is he going to go where to? is he going to go to you know who's going to let him leave this place yeah but that same rationale is how a white guy could walk out of that police station with confidence and people are just going to see this white boy and they're going to be like yeah, like the stuff here are saying he's dressed in local prison attire yeah so that means he's wearing jail clothes walking on the streets yeah, as a it. wise guy. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is going on here? They went for lunch and they were like, you can just stay in the office. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he says he tried to make his way to the railway station and he realized the railway station was next to the American embassy. So he walks into the embassy and asks for help. Mm-hmm. Um, he first asked for political asylum, but later admitted that what he really wanted to was get to Rhodesia, South Africa, or Israel. He doesn't actually want political asylum. He just wants to go to anywhere that's home, right? American embassy gave him a couple of reasons why he should just go back to his laundry room. They tell one, he does not fit the criteria for political asylum status. Two, he's not an American citizen. Three, although he's being held against his will, he's not being mistreated or tortured. Four, they have no way of knowing whether he's a legitimate, he was doing a legitimate flight to South Africa or as they allege in Mozambique, he was on a Rhodesian reconnaissance mission. Mm. 
because if they grant him asylum and assistance of any way and he was actually on this mission to aid and abet the Rhodesians, it would engulf the U.S. in political controversy and ultimately endanger U.S.-Mozambique relations. I beg, I beg. <laughs> they said they don't want to enter because they didn't even know what the guy was doing. I'm a, like, first of all, there are countries that America cares about getting into diplomatic situations with. Well, at that point in time, I would remind you that it is the Cold War. Mm-hmm. You have Frelimo fighting with Cuban and Soviet support. Okay. So America does not want to completely lose those countries in Southern Africa during the Cold War. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like they end up mm. fighting a proxy war in Angola. So Every when they s- yeah, so you know, like that. Uh, I might not say oh Mozambique is top of their list, but if you're an American. Uh, staff in Mozambique your primary goal is to make sure that you better relationships between the two countries not start that's, that's your work not start diplomatic incidents yeah because of one random guy that walked off the streets in prison clothes yeah fair enough and they said that the final reason is that he it seemed like he just really wanted to go home and he wasn't really asking for asylum he just was like I just want to go home yeah so they told him to turn himself over to the Mozambican authorities or the United Nations. They didn't help him. They sent him back. This was in January of 77. I respect it. Um, I do, but I think they must have felt bad. That must have been why he was part of that three-person exchange because they must have felt bad. Somebody the, Israelis was just... was, the Israelis must have heard about it and were like, really? You did that to one of our own? How like, have heard about it? Like, how else would he have been part of this three-person exchange? Because it's him, an American student, mm-hmm. and Robert Thompson, who spied for the Soviets. And I need to now talk about Thompson because, wow. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and hit the bell so that you get notified every time we drop an episode and you don't miss out on anything. If you're about to listen, please just subscribe. You can always, you know, come back and unsubscribe if you don't like it, but please subscribe first. Thank you. Do it right now. Right now. Hit the button. (laughs) Let's go. Now we're going to talk about Robert Glenn Thompson of 1693 North Gardiner Lane, Bayshore, originally from Detroit. But living in Long Island, New York. I'm really excited to hear what this guy did. For I just want to be talking like Austin Powers. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I have to tell you is that he was stupid. <laughs> like I read so much about this man, I lost, I got lost in it, and I was like, Tim Tan used to know about <laughs> So as I said, he was in the Air Force. He was part of the U.S. Air Force. He was in the Office of Special Investigation in Berlin. So he was sent to West Berlin and he was employed by the U.S. Air Force from 1952 to 1958. He left in 1958 because of a dishonorable discharge. Right. Why did he get a He got a dishonorable discharge. Before he got this, he was demoted from Airman First Class to Airman Second Class. Why? Pray tell, what did this man do? What was his crime? I need to stop. I need to stop laughing. On 9th of January 1957, he was court-martialed for dereliction of duty, being unfit for duty because of drunkenness, leaving his post and stealing a revolver. This is when he was demoted. The next month, his wife leaves for the US. So this is a German wife. Yeah. In July, mind you, he was demoted in January. 
In July of the same year, he was reprimanded by a commanding officer because Thompson came to work unshaven and unkept. And so he went out and got drunk. After 20 shots of cognac, Jesus. <laughs> he decided to hell with it and walked into East Berlin wearing civilian clothes and contacted Soviet intelligence officers saying he wanted to defect. The intelligence officers questioned a drunk Thompson for three hours and sent him back, telling him they don't think he'll make a good spy. Oh my God. This is so embarrassing. (sighs) Ten days later, a car pulls up to Thompson with men, one with a gun, who told him to get into a car. They took him to the same place he was before, only this time the atmosphere was different. They threatened to double agent him. Let me just read what he says. They took me back to the same place I was before, only this time the atmosphere was different. They threatened to double agent me. He said the vibes were off. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this time you don't have 20 shots of cognac in you. Like, I feel like that changes the vibe of his (laughs) situation. Imagine, what? Imagine some Detroit idiots called Bobby pulling up drunk out of his mind to the Soviet be like, hey, I want to be a spy for you guys. I'm ready to really lend my efforts to this. Um, is this country uh, the, the, <laughs> to hell with it <laughs> yo fuck America bro <laughs> so he says meaning that one of their agents would get word to my supervisors that I was working for them they interviewed me for nine hours that time and I smoked a lot of cigars <laughs> and at the end I agreed to work with them so this is the beginning of his work for the Soviets I don't think he was rejected the first time because yeah he was drunk i think it was because his method of defecting was going to the embassy i well i don't know if it was the embassy like he just like i think he must have been, he must have gone to east berlin berlin and just been like yo where are the soviets <laughs> <laughs> point me in the right imagine this drunk guy being like a drunk american yeah walking up to a random guy on the street yeah. of germany be like uh, where are the Soviets? Where's Fuck America. I want to I wanna be a spy. Where's the, where's the KGB? Where's the nearest KGB office? I'll take a left at the end of the street. Okay. Hey, you're, you're a good guy. You're a good guy, pal. <laughs> Thanks, pal. You're a good guy. That, hey, that guy's a good guy. <laughs> I want you to understand something about Robert before I even get into how... I'm just going to call him Bobby. I don't know if anyone in his life called him Bobby. His name was Robert Glenn That's, He's definitely Bobby. I'm going to talk to him about Bobby because, first of all, his neighbours, when he was finally caught... I'm jumping here a bit. But when he was finally caught, his neighbours were like, him? He's like this chubby guy who <laughs> drinks a lot. <laughs> Sits on his porch with his big stomach. He was a big guy. Like he was tall and he was big. He's like over he's like over six feet tall and he was like over like maybe like two fifty pounds. Like he was was a biggish guy and he was a drunk and he was lousy. He was a lousy racist. (laughs) No, 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 no. Like they were like, he's so American. He's so racist (laughs) that he put up a fence in between his house and his neighbor's house because black a black family moved in. Mm -hmm. So he built like a fence, just that one fence to separate their houses and then hung up a noose. Yeah. To face the black family and then put a sign on his lawn saying for sale mixed race or something or mixed family like he was like they were like that guy is violently racist he's he's american as apple pie (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> he drinks his beer. They're like he boasts a lot. He would talk about like, oh, he was a super pilot in World War One, and they're like, you were ten. <laughs> um, so people just didn't believe things that came out of his mouth. And yeah, he sold cooking gas, mm-hmm. like and house fuel. And he, you know, he'd be like, he has some nine hundred customers that rely on him. And people were like, you move. Like, okay Bobby Yeah okay Bobby Sure <laughs> So like when they're like I feel like he could have Come to someone and said I'm a Soviet spy And they'd be like mm, Okay <laughs> Good mm-hmm. one <laughs> Sure I believe you Yeah Like, like it, I love finding this guy Because a lot of people think Spies have to be like Super intelligent Or super Slick Slick No What he did in Berlin was He would hide a camera He would hide a camera In his cigar box it was like a special they just gave him special things to be able to take pictures of documents mm-hmm. he had clearance up to secret so he would get all these documents he stole information on u.s military installments okay. on mis- missile sites he stole code books osi intelligence counter intelligence activities mm. and identity and personality and um identity and personnel data on agents safe house locations etc yeah. Um, the Soviets, he says that the Soviets gave him four electrical outlets, which were actually microphones, okay. to screw into office walls, and that he received $4,000. And then he would use the camera he snuck in to deliver, to take pictures of confidential and secret documents and deliver them to the Soviets every two weeks. A decent amount of money at the time. $4,000. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that They were paying him good money. And in December of 57, he told the Soviets, you know, I'm being transferred out of Berlin. I'm going to Montana. Mm. And he claims they flew him for into the USSR for additional training. See, most people don't buy this. They're just like, these are the things we can say he actually spied and did. Yeah. But we don't. He embellishes a lot of his life. In later life, he claims that he's actually born from a Soviet, like from a Russian dad and a um, German mom, and he was actually born in Germany. Interesting. And there's some people on the internet who back this, but you know, internet is full of a lot of things. Yeah. But um, they can't. America still believes like he was just an American. Could guy. he speak German? Mm, I don't believe so. Mm. I mean, I don't know actually because. I mean, his handlers were English-speaking, definitely. Okay. Because they also worked in America, like mm. his handlers in America and stuff. And also, like, apparently he had a huge mast in his house. Like, I feel like that is saying well, like the American flag. a spy. No, like a, like a, um, I think the radio mast. Oh, okay. Right. I, I feel like that's saying I'm transferring information outside of the country. What? Yeah. Obviously, anyways. You know that's all. You're watching 90s DSTV. Do you remember that big dish that people used to have? Yeah. 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 I actually bought a book. It's called... I'm going to be saying books on this podcast, but I've promised at least 10 people that we're going to do a resource. So we mm. have to do a resource. A resource thing. But it's called Cold War Long Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and it talks about like sleeper agents, you know, mm. in America, but particularly in Long Island. So it has a part about... Bobby, who had his wife, his wife was German-born, he had three children. It came up off as God-fearing. Well, if your dad could down 20 shots of cognac in one night, you'd feel good too. <laughs> who downs, first of all, 20 shots of cognac? So like 20 shots of Henny is crazy. 20? 20. 20 is nuts. 
is he embellishing that or like could he uh, have actually drank 20 shots and then gone and got it interrogated by the soviets for three hours and then gone home and gone to bed is that what you're telling me <laughs> this is a real person but in this um, book they talk a lot about how racist he was like they're like it was a lot so they talk about the noose incident they said that he would use racial slurs all the time when he saw um, his neighbors, they were called the Youngs. Like, so every time he saw the Youngs, he would use those words, you know. He had a large 50-foot-tall shortwave radio antenna that towered over his house. And I just feel like that, that says... That's big spy energy. That is huge spy energy. Like, maybe it was just so obnoxious and ridiculous that Americans were like, mm, surely not. Like Also because it's Robert. Yeah, yeah. I mean... <laughs> gosh and the young family would complain about weird noises that were coming from his basement at like three or four in the morning um and first of all i think they're black people complaining so people are like eh. mm. um they're or they thought he was probably just doing that to piss them off. Yeah, yeah to piss them off yeah. because he doesn't like them because they're black they just thought you know it's him being a spiteful neighbor but yeah on january 7th 1965 he was sitting in his office on little east neck road in babylon in new york an fbi agent surrounded the property stormed into his office and arrested him in front of his employees later in the day a dozen agents surrounded his house and they conducted a detailed search of the property while all his neighbors looked on in surprise they're like what he was a spy they trusted him to spy like, people? <laughs> like the selfies must not be really smart but also maybe that is actually really smart because it's very he, smart he, and they were like he was super super patriotic um he would talk about like how much he hates the soviets and how he fought them which like i guess a spy would do but he was like as i said american is apple pie and they just do not think like people's ideas of what a spy would be then and even today you know you watch spy thrillers and stuff and they're smart and they're agile and they're running <laughs> like you know they're do they're intelligent highly intelligent people and everyone just thought of bobby as a dud just as a dud it's just a dud. it's just not very clever that bobby guy yeah he was one of four men in a spy ring that was formed out of the soviet embassy in washington dc the three other men included embassy counselor boris karpovich okay. also known as john kurlinski and another embassy official referred to as steve stevie and fedor kudashkin an interpreter at the United Nations in New York. Mm. Sounds like Kardashian. Kudashkin. Kudashkin. Yeah. yeah. The designated meetup locations for the conspirators included East Berlin, Thompson's childhood home in Detroit, Great Falls, Montana, and Limbrook train station parking lot, specifically next to the Sailor and Soldiers Monument. <laughs> The identities of the Soviet agents were deduced based on different colored lighters used to light a cigarette at the station. Wow. Wow. Yeah. At these locations, conversations were conducted inside a 1959 blue Chevrolet. Blue Chevy? A blue Chevy, baby. They would meet up in a blue Chevy. A 1959 blue Chevy. They said that they basically told Thompson to observe his neighbors in the first five months of 1962 and his neighbors in Long Island. And these observations were how Thompson shaped his cover identity. Okay. 
At one of these, their daily meetings, a laundry truck was taking notes and monitoring them because the FBI was already on to them. Uh, it was not the first time that they had watched Thompson. They had actually watched him since he was in the Air Force back in 1957 because they wanted to trace when he was first hired by the Soviets. And the first thing they traced was Thompson receiving $300 for disclosing details about the Rouge Park missile site near Detroit to Soviet agent Emmet Kerlinski. In further testimony from his brother, Stephen Thompson, Stephen says that a Russian named Stephen, gosh, how many Stephens can we have? Stavinsky. A Russian named Stephen came to his childhood Detroit home back in 1959 and asked why Thompson had not contacted him and to please do so. <laughs> I'm looking for my good friend. Bob, he he helped me with. Um, anyway, just tell Bob. Tell to, Bobby to contact me. To contact me. Tell Bobby to contact me right now. It is very important <laughs> and not espionage related at all. Yeah, after his arrest, the day after his arrest, mm-hmm. um, every media outlet was talking about Thompson's indictment, talking about him, his tall tales of his own military service while at local barbecues, his conflicts with his black neighbors, his support of for Barry Goldwater, and his claims of a growing business. What's <laughs> a bad person? In an interview with the New York Times, Thompson is quoted as saying he was 100% American mm. and that all these accusations are not true. Mm. He further explained that he was concerned about his 900 customers leaving him <laughs> and that he had nothing against black people. He just had things against the young family because his kids and theirs did not get along. Um, sure. Okay, Bobby. In an interview, I was just let you know how Bobby is. In an interview, Bobby says that he was a target of federal agents because the Air Force had wanted him to re-enlist and he refused to do so. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, that Bobby is too important. We need him to win the war. When you say things like that, do, like, do people believe you? Anyways, he after a while, because they were going to charge give him death penalty they gave him a, a month to think about it and he ch- changed his plea to guilty okay did, did, did he talk to a lawyer at all yeah he had a lawyer his attorney was the person who convinced him to work out a plea deal to avoid the death sentence okay fair enough. um and he says that he was a, a spy for the soviets mm-hmm. for a total of six years from june 1957 to july 1963 he said he defected not to work for the soviets because of their communist ideals but because he was disgruntled about a court martial for public drunkenness which led to his dishonorable discharge fair enough he also detailed his training by east german and soviet officials and the information that he gave them he also said he's sorry and he's doing this for his children i'm sure the lawyer helped him write a little bit oh yeah 100 percent. yeah like he was contemplating suicide yeah sure, okay. <laughs> um but yeah he ends up being part of this tripartite exchange he was sent to prison in lewisburg pennsylvania yeah and then until 1978 where he's part of the Soviets, uh, Mozambique, Israeli, uh, American, that whole mishmash mm-hmm. of exchange. The cultural sandwich. Yeah. It was basically because the congressman, Benjamin Gilman, represented Rockland County, New York, and they had a huge Jewish and active Orthodox Jewish 
district. Mm, that makes so, sense. Yeah. And so within that community, the cause was taken up to free Marcus, which is the guy who was sitting in Mozambique. So, you know, his people are trying to free him. The United States government knows something they don't know is that they could have helped free him since, <laughs> but they turned him back. Um, so the congressman takes up the cause and he does a little prisoner exchange. Nice. Yeah. And that is how Robert Thompson is released from federal prison and deported to East Germany. This is when he now starts saying that he was actually German all the whole while. No, he said he was German. He was German. But some people think he was just saying that because he felt like they wouldn't release him if he was American. Like, yeah. why would they deport him to Germany if he's yeah. an American? Um, but yeah, that is the story of... Little Bobby. Little Bobby. Bobby. What was his last name again? Thompson? Thompson. Uh, little Bobby yeah. T. I think he's still alive. <laughs> 87 today. He's alive? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, he's alive. Some people just thrive, man. How can you drink 20 shots of Hennessy and just make it past 80? First of all. Guy, we've, we've spoken about this before. Can I remember that? The guy who refused to die. All those people, like, they were living hard knock lives. <laughs> 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 living, <laughs> living... So past 80, mm. you remember the guy who got shot in like the hip, the leg, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the yeah. and he was, I forgot his name, but bro, that guy yeah. refused to die. And he lived up until 80. Yeah. Even the guy in the, the guy who would not quit fighting. Yeah. The Japanese soldier. Japanese soldier. Yeah, some people are just, I guess, hardier than others. Bro. For, for different reasons, you, only science can explain. <laughs> Only God can explain. Science doesn't have the answers for us with these things. Anyways, um, that is Bobby. That is the other people involved. Okay, so let's go to the Gilat Shalit prisoner exchange. Um, in 2011, there was an agreement between Israel and Hamas to release the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit in exchange for 1,027 prisoners. As I said, they were mainly Palestinians and Arab Israelis. But there was also a Ukrainian, a Jordanian, and a Syrian. 280 of these prisoners had been sentenced to life in prison for planning and perpetrating various attacks against Israeli targets. Right. Now, Hamas military leader Ahmed Jabari was quoted in the Saudi Arabian newspaper Al Hayat as confirming that the prisoners being released under the deal were collectively responsible for the killing of 569 Israelis. Whoa. The agreement had come five years and four months after Palestinian militants captured Shalit in southern Israel along the Gaza Strip border. Now, Shalit was just a regular soldier. His older brother had also been a soldier. I mean, I, every Israeli has to serve the IDF. It's, it's the NYSC. Yeah. The IDF is the NYSC. Um, and... Even though he was considered like a bit medically weak for the front lines, he decided to join the front lines anyways. <laughs> the agreement was authorized by Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu, you remember Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, and Ahmad Jambari, the head of um, the Hamas military on the other side. Now, he Gilad Shalit was the first captured Israeli soldier to be released alive in 26 years. The agreement is the largest prisoner exchange agreement Israel has ever made and the highest price Israel has ever paid for a single soldier. Wow. It was very controversial. 
he had been captured by Hamas in a 2006 cross-border raid across the, um, the Gaza Strip. And there were rescue attempts made to search for him, but they could not find him. I'm going to read some of the prominent prisoners that were released as part of this 1027. Okay. Hussam Badran, who is now spokesperson for Hamas in Qatar. Okay. Walid Abd Al-Aziz, who had received 36 life sentences because he was part of the execution of the Café Monet bombing in 2002 and the Hebrew University bombing in 2002 and the Rishon Lezayon bombing in 2002. In each of these, um, in Rishon, 16 people were killed, 55 were injured. Cool. In the Hebrew University attacks, there were also... Um, I'm not entirely sure how many people were killed there. In the Café Monet bombing, 11 Israelis were killed, 55, 54 were wounded. Nasir Sam Abd al-Razak had gotten 29 life sentences. He had planned the Passover massacre in 2002, in which 30 Israeli civilians were killed, 140 were wounded. Maez Wal Talib Abu Sharak had gotten 19, sentence, uh, 19 life sentences. And Majdi Mohammed, also 19 life sentences. And Fadi Mohammed Ibrahim Al-Jaba, 18 life sentences. They were responsible for the attack on Boss 37 in Haifa in 2002, where 17 passengers were killed, 53 were injured. What I'm saying is that there are heavy hitters in this list. By hitters, you mean terrorists? Yes. Yeah. These are like... Bad men. Really bad men. This is not like... These are people who participated in... You have someone who participated in a suicide bombing who afterward was... Like, what, what? <laughs> these are career terrorists. Yes. There was a woman who participated in suicide bombing who after she was released said, yeah, I killed Israelis. I'm going to do it again. Zero regrets. Did it for Allah. Allah Akbar. Peace. What? Like, she literally was like, I think, honestly, this prisoner exchange kind of allows me understand more about the Israeli psyche. Because that this guy was just a regular guy. He was a regular idea soldier. And um, he's the first to be returned alive in 26 years at this point in time. This is in 2011. He's not, like, particularly wealthy. His parents are not in government. He's not just a dude. And they really wanted him back. Like Hamas knew they could get these many people released for one young Jewish man. Mm. He just finished university and joined the IDF. He was literally like doing his NYC. Yeah. Imagine living in a country where your government values your life that much. Um, no, I can't. Also, <laughs> you know, yeah, okay, fair enough, sure. No, I no no. Say what you want to say. I mean, you can you, you might see it differently from I do. Like, say what you want to say. I don't even see it differently. I just don't want to get too much into uh, Israeli Palestinian politics. Yeah, yeah. If I even feel bad for calling those guys terrorists before, because you know, to them, they're, to themselves, they're freedom fighters. Okay, let's not get into it. I exactly. Mean, let's not get into it. Let's not get into it. But yeah, um, that was the truth. Um, and Gilad Shalit was released. He is, yeah. I don't even know what he's doing now. I tried to find out, but probably just living your regular life. Imagine if he died like two days later in like, an accident. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Imagine why I see you and Boko Haram collects you. Mm. <laughs> God, that's what's happening right now. 
government doesn't care. Yeah, didn't they just 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 um, kidnapped a bunch of students, right? Like yeah. 50. Yeah. It's not even like strange times. But it's so scary how that is not mainstream news that dominates everything. Yes. But that's the thing, like at any given moment there's always like four or five stories that it's kind of crazy that they're not mainstream news right now. Yeah. Yeah. You have countries pulling out of Nigeria right now. Julius Berger has stopped operations. Malls in Abuja are shutting. Jabi Lake Mall is shut. It's, it's very scary. We're in a very scary time and we still just have to keep like living everyday life and just... Where is our president? Is he in Nigeria? No. Of course he isn't. Does he care about Nigeria? Yeah. That guy travels... <sighs> no, if we go there, like we're not even going to finish this episode. <laughs> no, because like, why? Why? That guy took so much sick leave that he really should not even be allowed to travel. Yeah. Like, actually sit down and yeah. do your job for one second. For like... You're in South Korea having what? For three months. Just stay in Nigeria. He's in South Korea for how long? Uh, no, I said, no, I said like just... For three months. He should just sit down months. in one place. Bro. Like, it's really... <sighs> did you see the loans he just took out? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. That, that loan is on our children's head. I know. It's only it's like it's on us, but like it. It's a, it's another forty years of hell. Forty years. He knows he's. This is an eighty-year legacy of this man just harming the country. Let's lighten it up. Let's talk about the catchers. Now, Carl Catcher and Hannah Catcher, husband and wife, swingers. Let's going to talk about Carl. We're going to focus on Carl. He's the super spy. Carl was a Czechoslovakian intellectual born in 1934. He was an undercover sleeper agent who spoke four languages and was trained to beat a lie detector test. He excelled at collecting compromat at swingers, compromat being like compromising information about the other side, at swinger parties where CIA officers, Pentagon officials, and at least one US senator traded wives, according to ex-CIA officer Jonah Mendez. Jesus. Yeah. They were swanging. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, they were living the life. They were considered an it couple. Hannah was 10 years younger. She was a decade younger than Carl. And she worked in the New York diamond trade, which was a cover story that allowed her to travel back and forth to Europe with large sums of cash. It also explained the couple's lavish and affluent lifestyle. Mm. By the way, so they get exchanged, right, on the Bridge of Spice. Okay. And when they get exchanged, Hannah is wearing a white fur coat and heels. She went out in style. <laughs> Isn't that what she, that's probably just what she got arrested in. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Hannah was described as most attractive, really. A beautiful, blue-eyed, blonde, Czechoslovakian intelligence officer. Um, she was part of a team. Her and her husband came as a unit, worked as a unit, and left as a unit. Were they actually married? Yeah. Okay. They, they were married. They, they had children? Um, nothing here about children, but mm. they were married. Like, okay. they were actually married. Um, they had started working for the Czechoslovak intelligence service in their 20s. Um, and... Carl's mission was to infiltrate the CIA however possible. 
They got married and moved to Vienna to build a cover story as two dissidents who did not support communism. Mm. And by 1965, they were en route to America to find jobs. Mm. As far as the U.S. government was concerned, their stories started there. So they didn't. Um, what Vender said is that the background check can only go as far back as the day you landed on U.S. shores. And right. I think that's probably true for today, though. Yeah, no, no. But, today they'll find you. Uh, today they'll find you. Um, but they said CIA security does not go knocking on the doors of your next door neighbors in Czechoslovakia, which is, I guess, fair enough. Carl was fluent in Czech, English, Russian, and French. And he was working as a comedy writer for Czech radio stations. Yeah, and he leveraged his language and intelligence skills to join the CIA-backed Radio Free Europe. Wow. Um, he also pursued a PhD in philosophy at Columbia University in New York. And his case officer, Alexander Sokolov, would later describe him as a super spy. They lived on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, a few okay. blocks from Central Park in a glamorous condo. And guess who was the neighbor? Mel Brooks. Wow. Yeah. Do, do, do they know Mel Brooks? Yeah, like okay. I think so. Like they were like Mel, they were neighbors with Mel Brooks and the Czech tennis star Ivan Landy. Okay. Um, and yeah, like also now before we get to Carl's spying, Carl was apparently, according to some sources, found by the Czech, the Czechoslovakian. Did I say Czechs? I'll say the Czech. Because even though now Czechoslovakia today is now the Czech Republic and Slovakia, yeah. so it's two different countries. Two different countries. Um, and the breakup of the country affects his return to like right. normalcy. Yeah. But um, apparently in school. They found him to be highly intelligent and possibly a psychopath. Okay. Yeah, but he was super, super smart. And it's said that he was seen from an early age to have like strong analytical capacity and high intelligence, but also a very unlikable character. In later years, his former classmates would never invite him on their annual class meeting. <laughs> he was not invited for school reunion. Because he was that bad. He was that bad. Wow. <laughs> Um, he studied physics and maths as well as film mm. and then philosophy in Colombia. So this is a man who is very intelligent, speaks multiple languages, and he is a spy. He was so good at spying and got so high in the CIA that his own Czech intelligence agency started thinking, is he a double spy? Is he a double agent? <laughs> is he a double agent? Because how is he doing so well? And then he just went over their heads. And went straight to the KGB. Okay. I was like, you know what? I'm going to talk to y'all direct. Because those little... <laughs> this Czech thing, I'm not really... I was like, these little kids in the Czech intelligence agency are trying to talk to me somehow. So that's, I'm just going to go straight to the big dog. <laughs> like, wow. what, what, what is this about? Him and Hannah actually, by 1972, both had U.S. citizenship. How long were they in the U.S. for? They were there for a long time. They, they were in the U.S. for 21 years. Mm. He moved to the U.S. in 1965. Okay. Wow, it didn't take that long for them to get citizenship. At it's all. nice to be white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is nice to be white. He was alternatively codenamed Rhino, Turian, or Pedro. 
gosh. But it's interesting, like, how was he such an unlikable person but so good at spying and, like, gaining people's trust? I think he was probably, like, super unlikable in uni. Like, he was a big fish in a small pond. And then he goes to D.C. and New York with other... He's around other rich dudes who are just like him. Like, Mm. I mean, I would say psychopathic personality... It's probably not rare. Yeah, if it's with congressmen and... <laughs> like, if he was in um, swinger clubs. CIA agent. I saw the names of the clubs and I should have written them down. Now I've lost it. He was swinging. <laughs> yeah, with probably people who like... who. It's crazy. You know how we talk about like there's certain personality traits that when you're growing up, when you're a kid, when you're in school, you're like, that is a nasty person. And then you grow up and then you see in certain circles. In like workplaces or certain circles. Yeah, that those personality traits are the personality traits that are like... They thrive. Yes. Yeah. I have pictures here. Do you want to see these pictures? Yeah, I'd love to. Look at at, at them on the beach. Yeah, they look like... They look very 70s. Very. Yeah. He's not a bad looking guy. Yeah, he's actually, he's not a bad looking guy. But that is them at a nudist colony. <laughs> the one on the beach is them at the nudist colony. And the one, the other one, mm-hmm. the Playboy Club. The Playboy Club. Of course, the, of course, the Playboy Club. So in the CIA, he rose through the ranks like really, really fast. Um, he worked as a translator and was soon given top secret clearance. He was assigned to the CIA division that translated telephone tape intercepts relating to the recruitment of Soviets and Czechoslovakian spies. Jesus. <laughs> According to CIA agent Mendez, former CIA agent, she says, this is such a sensitive place for an asset to be parked and it is just kind of amazing that he got that access. <laughs> he was, imagine like going back yeah, yeah, and he, he, you know, he calls his hand and he's like, "Yeah, man, I was listening to you guys talk today at work." <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, oh Don't hire that boy. He's American. <laughs> oh my gosh! In by 1976, the CIA suspected that someone was leaking intelligence, and so they restricted Carl's access, and he was let go the following year. Some reports say he might have continued to carry on work as a consultant, but. By the 1980s, he was reactivated. He had friends in high places. They were like, oh, we thought Carl was a league. And I was like, no, he's not. They brought him back. He swings with me on Thursdays. <laughs> and they brought him back. Return of the catch. It is at this point that the Czech guys are like, is he double-crossing us? Like, how can, how can they bring you back? Mm. Like, they suspect you, and then they bring you back. But yeah, man, that is... Carl and Hannah on the 11th of February 1986 they were part of why are you laughing I'm just thinking about it like that's the fact that they brought him back <laughs> yeah but yeah they were arrested yes so they were arrested and guess who so they get arrested in 1984 he had told his neighbours that they were moving back to Europe um, Hannah was busying herself in the diamond trade, quote unquote, and she was codenamed Adrid. She was helping share the information that Carl was gathering. But the FBI had spotted him doing brush passes, where an agent quickly passes information to their handler. Yeah. yeah. Um, because they were actually looking at his handler, which is how they found him. They actually, it's not like they suspected him and that's how they found him. They were. They suspected the handler. They were suspected the handler. Like, and they're I, like, know, I know that ain't who I think it is. <laughs> 
that car? <laughs> like, why is he out here with the KGV guy? <laughs> like, what's what's going on? Ain't that car? Ain't that car from the tem- the seventh floor? <laughs> like, I just saw him in the office. <laughs> why is he out here with the KGV? Oh my gosh! Yeah, so they saw they caught him. They started surveilling him, and then they started surveilling Hannah, and they saw her. Um, but they didn't have enough information to charge Hannah, so they did not. And this is in 1984, right? Now, the borough tried to move in before the couple could quickly leave America. They had been in America at this point for over 20 years. Um, Hannah was held as a material witness and Carl was held on charge of conspiracy to commit espionage. Promises were made in exchange for cooperation, but mistakes were also made. <laughs> Here comes what also is partly responsible for why September 11th was not caught. FBI and CIA butting heads. So the FBI and CIA were butting heads, they were blaming each other, and prosecutors couldn't make a case. Okay. So after two years, they just arranged a spy trade. Now, guess who the prosecutor on the case was? Let me guess. Um, Was it... um, Don't tell me. Was it... um, Is he a prominent politician now? Yes. Was it um, Rudy Giuliani? Yes. Okay. It was, it was Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. Was this, um, it was the star, star celeb prosecutor of that, of, that era. Yeah, of that era. Yeah, it was Giuliani. According to Katja, Giuliani didn't want to mar his rate by trying a case he couldn't win. Yeah, that's, so. that sounds like Giuliani. Well, it does. It does, it does sound like Giuliani. So, the exchange. Speaking of the exchange, Katja says, There was a car, a gold Mercedes, and this German lawyer, Wolfgang Vogel, who arranged all the swaps, beginning with Gary Powers, the US pilot um, that is featured in The Bridge of Spies. Mm. So this exchange is The Bridge of Spies exchange, baby. Wow. Main one. And Katja says, So I crossed the line, I got in with my wife, and the feeling was, I am Superman. Uh, on the Potsdam side of the bridge, Ketcher had a glass of champagne. I went to a party at some Stasi villa, he said. He then flew back to Prague the next day and was interrogated in the Czech spa town for two months. Jeez. When the questioning ended, he and Hannah were forced to move into an apartment with Ketcher's mother. The high life, living near Fifth Avenue in a fine condo, diamonds, swinging. Over. Over. But Hannah went out in style. I, I just remembered she wore a white mink coat with a matching white mink hat for maximum effect. Damn. I love it. I love it. And then they entered a gold Mercedes. And so this is what, you know, but one thing I have learned is that spies, when they go home, it's not all fine and dandy. They had been in America for over 20 years. Yeah. They were not trusted at home. And he had gone over the intelligent head to go straight to the KGB. Mm. And then Czechoslovakia becomes the Czech Republic at Slovakia. He's on the wrong side of the border from where he was originally from. Yep. Like, life is not, it's not the high life that he was used to in yeah. his past life. Like, apparently this was, well, I'm going to take this with a grain of salt, but I'm going to say it's probably true. But because uh, a lot of media, I've obviously read uh, Western so when Western media talk about Russia, do you have to understand that you're reading Western media talk about Russia? Mm. But the what it 
basically says is that, you know, a lot of their sleeper agents, they'll get a stamp, they'll like, get a parade, they'll get a celebration when they go back home, and then, like, they kind of just don't live a very great life after that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, I think Carl's, is Carl still alive as well? Yeah, Carl's is, Carl is still kicking. He is still alive. These spy times. Is she still alive? Uh, Hannah, I yeah. believe so too. Ooh, ooh, something really random about Carl. What? Something happened in 1999. What? It features somebody who randomly comes up in this podcast in the randomest places. Dodie Fired. Okay. That is... Harrods. Yeah, sorry, not Dodie Fired. Mohammed Al-Fired. Yeah. Father of... So Harrods, Harrods. Yeah, Harrods. Uh, owner, controversial owner of Harrods, and the father of Princess Diana's lover, Dodie Fired. Um, he was suing three men with CIA connections in America for damages of six million. This was reported by the Guardian in July of um, 1999, and according to the Guardian, a former Czech agent, Carl Kocher was also connected to the affair. Of course he was. Now, Carl denies it. Um, his denial... So essentially, the three men were caught trying to sell false papers to Mohammed Al-Fayed. The papers allege that Diana and Dodi were killed, that they were killed... Um, In a CIA operation. Yeah, it was a CIA operation um, that... MI6 had asked the CIA to help them in the operation and the CIA said they would not help. Mm-hmm. Or something like that, but that the CIA helped to trail them and surveil them when they were in America because they were in America before France. You know, they died in, in Paris, yeah. but they were in America before. That the CIA helped them with surveillance, but they said they wouldn't help them with the killing. Anyways, it turned out to be falsified documents. Now, Carl is implicated in this by the newspaper he's not charged by Mohammed Al-Fayed and also the case doesn't go forward in America which Mohammed says it's because of the conspiracy to hide the truth in his letter um, I can't read the whole letter for time's sake um, maybe I'll leave, leave a link somewhere for someone who's interested but he says that basically his old spy friend invited him to Vienna and asked him to get them two rooms in a hotel and he got the rooms and he was like, I'm an intelligent guy. Do you really think I'll be involved in this and get a room in my name for me and my friend if I'm part of this conspiracy? He was like, he knew nothing about the conspiracy. The guy just invited him to Vienna. Yeah. When he was in Vienna, the guy tries to get him involved in the conspiracy. And he was like, this is below me. <laughs> this is below me. I just don't know. This is not cute. Um, th- when he was there, he also meets up. He sees his friend invite another friend for lunch so they have lunch there's three of them and at the lunch he realizes the guy is the guy says doesn't say his name like says a false name but it was clear to him he was like i worked for the cia for, for a long time i know a cia agent when i see one yeah that boy was cia yeah and he was like the guy knew a lot about me he's cia like he was just like that guy was 100 percent a cia agent and he feels so like so he yeah a company man as they call them a company man and the exchange happens and he was like by the time this exchange is happening in vienna i've already gone back to prague he's like they stamped my passport on that day but passport stamps don't say the time but he was like i was chilling at home when they arrested these men at the ambassador hotel in vienna 
if I really was part of this, like, why would I have left? Or like, am I really the super spy? Or, like, he was just mm-hmm. like, this whole thing is dumb. It's beneath me. You guys like to add my name to matters that don't involve me because I disgraced you people 20 years ago. <laughs> but please don't add me. Um, but he says something that's really interesting. He says that he feels that he f- he feels like this case may have been intentional to lead Mohammed Al-Fayed in the wrong direction. Mm. He says, as someone who worked for the CIA, he does not believe the CIA was uh, involved in the death of Diana and Dodi. He says it's possible that there's a rogue agent that could have been paid by some age, um, some people to participate in this murder. Consult, a consultant. Yeah. yeah. And that the CIA will obviously then actively hide to... They will actively act to hide the fact that... It was connected to them. Right? Yeah, like a rogue agent. Like, oh, we trained this guy. He went off the rails and like he did this. If anyone finds out he was a CIA agent, no one is going to actually believe that we were not involved in this. Yeah. Um, so that's what he says. He says it's likely, you know, rogue agents could have done this, um, but it's very unlikely the CIA themselves were involved. But that I realized that it is from this case and from these false documents that that whole thing about Diana being pregnant with Dodie's baby, this is where this is from. Mm-hmm. So it's not really real. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not founded in any. It's kind not. Of truth. Yeah, it's not yeah. founded in any kind of truth. That is our episode. Woo, woo, woo. Who was your favorite person? Um, Kyle Ketcher for some reason. Why? I don't know. I think just the fact that like it's the fact that he's a swinger. It's not the <laughs> fact that he's a swinger. It's just the fact that like he kind of he not only rose so high in the CIA, but then he got the most ironic job. Yeah. And access to the most ironic, you know. Um, yeah, case studies or whatever. You know, so I, I really like that about him. He's your fave. Okay, I'll leave. I'll leave us with a quote. His final observation, as for his years in the security services, the world is really fucked up, and intelligence services have a lot to do with it. Boom. See you next week, guys. And that is our episode. Please remember to subscribe. You can find us on Instagram at the Dirty Lie Podcast and on Twitter at the Dirty Lie Pod. Um, please remember to subscribe to our shows wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can hit that bell so you get notified on Spotify. Also, don't forget to leave comments. They go a long way and they help us, you know, remain able to do this and tell your friends and family about us. Yay. Yeah, we are trying to grow. So please remember to leave a comment, a review and share this if you enjoyed this. Thank you very much.